The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, a well-respected nutritionist, Dr. Joanne Slavin. She is a professor in the Department of Food Science and Nutrition at the University of Minnesota in St. Paul, where she teaches advanced human nutrition. She has authored more than 300 scientific articles on dietary fiber, carbohydrates, whole grains, protein, snacking, and the role of diet in disease prevention. She has served as a member of the 2010 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. She is a member of numerous scientific societies, including the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics and the American Society for Nutrition. I heard her speak years ago, and I know she is my go-to person when it comes to fiber and health. So welcome, Dr. Slavin. Well, thanks for having me on the program. I always like to ask my fellow dietitians, how did you find this field of nutrition? How did you come to this path in your career? Well, I was really lucky. I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin and I milked cows my whole life and also was in 4-H. So I got to go to State 4-H Congress in Madison, Wisconsin, and I got to do a food demonstration. So I've always been interested in food from farm to fork all along. And then actually, I was also very active. I played early on basketball, volleyball, and got interested in nutrition from that side too. So I've pretty much been in it. I really have never done anything else but nutrition. Yeah, it's a really exciting field. And with regard to fiber, of course, decades ago, I was writing fact sheets on the importance of getting more dietary fiber. We mostly spoke about soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, and we'll dive into that. But now it seems like we have a brand new frontier, and this is because of our knowledge of the microbiome and specifically the microbiota or those organisms that live in our gut. And so your world must have opened in a whole new direction as well. Well, this is what's interesting about science is that we have always been in that world, in the fiber world, so we've been collecting fecal samples and looking at changes in the microbiome for a very long time, but nobody was really that interested. So if you go back maybe 10 years ago when there was some data that changes in the microbiota were actually linked to good health outcomes, so people seem to lose weight, they seem to have some other good health outcome, all of a sudden everybody got interested. So it went from this really small group of people that have been in fiber their whole careers to everybody in the health field saying, hey, we're going to have to take a look at the microbiota and figure out how to measure it and see how it is linked to health. So it's a very exciting time. It really is. And the most recent presentations that you've got listed on your Department of Food Science and Nutrition site are titled Nourishing the Gut, Diet and the Microbiome, the Effect of Diet on the Gut Microbiome. And in looking at some of the recent research that has connected the microbiome to brain health, looking at the gut-brain axis, for example, as well as diabetes prevention and weight control, it seems like we do need to focus on how we are nourishing those gut microorganisms, which brings us to the topic of fiber. 
How would you define fiber? What is your elevator speech on defining this particular food component? Well, it really is fuel for the gut. So it's basically mostly carbohydrates. So carbohydrates that escape digestion and absorption. So we don't get calories from them in the normal way. They get down into the large intestine and potentially get fermented by the microbiota. And that can have some health benefits. So anything like Starch is a great example. So usually starch is digestible. We get calories from it. But we now have resistant starch that we realize that a lot of high-carbohydrate foods, cooked foods, uh, you know, boiled and cooled potatoes actually have starch that has become not digestible. So all of a sudden, it equals fiber. So I think wow. fiber, you know, it used to be a negative. People would say, oh, fiber, you don't get any calories from it. You're diluting the calories in the diet. So it's a negative thing. And now people are like, hey, no, it's actually good that we need to get some fuel down to those many microbes that are in our digestive tract. And that is fiber. That's the one thing. And this is why historically is fiber a nutrient. It isn't in the normal way that nutrients, vitamins, and minerals get into the body and do something. Fiber is different in that it has to get fermented in the large intestine to have these benefits. And they're kind of secondary metabolites rather than direct. So it's a little hard to study. And I think that's one of the slow things in studying the fecal effects is that all we have is fecal samples in human subjects. And and by that, that's really the end of the ride for all what's going on in the, the large intestine. So uh, it's pretty hard to study. But I think that this idea of fiber, and I will say too, that if we go into the recommendations, the fiber recommendations we have, even though it makes sense that they'd be set up on how much bowel function do you get from different fibers, they're actually, the strongest data is protection against cardiovascular disease. So when we look at our large prospective cohort studies, higher intakes of fiber protects significantly against cardiovascular disease. And that goes back to your point, Melinda, that it's way beyond just the fecal samples and gut health. We see it affecting cardiovascular, diabetes, brain health, So effects throughout the body. So when I was first teaching clients and patients about fiber, I categorized fiber into two columns. One was soluble and one was insoluble. And I described the insoluble as more or less a brush that would go through the gut and say, help ease constipation, providing there was enough water to go with it. And then it was the soluble fiber that was related to lowering some of the blood lipids. So the oat brand products that were so popular, for example, or pectin in apples. Is that how you still categorize fibers or have we progressed from those earlier delineations? Well, that's the problem with fiber. Whenever we try to simplify it and make it easier, it's like, well, yeah, that works kind of, but not always. So in general, that works. So when we look at the fibers that are most likely to lower our blood lipids or control blood sugars, it is those viscous fibers that are soluble. So oat bran, psyllium, those fibers work really well and they're soluble, but there's a lot of soluble fibers, things like inulin that are definitely soluble fibers, but they're not viscous, that don't have much of an effect on blood lipids and blood glucose. So it's always like, you know, there's got to be a ringer in the crowd that throws that off, but it's still not a bad concept. It's still on our nutrition facts label, and it will continue to be on the nutrition facts label because there is enough science there that if you're working with a diabetic or 
someone with elevated cholesterol, you want to encourage more soluble fiber for sure. Insoluble fiber definitely has more of an effect on laxation because a lot of that fiber, whether it's wheat bran, cellulose-type fiber, survives all the way through and binds water all the way through. So it's going to be more likely to increase stool weight than a soluble fiber. So you mentioned inulin, and I think this is really interesting because I don't think the term inulin even crossed my radar, say, 10 years ago. And it may just be that I'm not in the fiber world as solidly as you are. But this term came to me at a dietetic association meeting within the last few years where this particular fiber was pulled out as being a prebiotic. Are all fibers prebiotic or does inulin have some magical quantities? And we should probably define what a prebiotic is. Absolutely. You know, when we talk about the effect on the gut microbiota, and fiber, really the prebiotic field kind of worked outside of fiber for a while. And the fibers that were most studied and found to be most effective at changing the lactobacillus and bifidobacteria are the oligosaccharides similar to inulin, which is a fructo-oligosaccharide. So a short chain, non-digestible carbohydrate with fructose and also galacto-oligosaccharide, which is really only in milk especially human milk, you have galacto-oligosaccharides, and both of those short-chain fibers or oligosaccharides are most likely to have a prebiotic effect, which was defined as I give you a fiber and I show a change in your microbiota, which also relates in a health benefit. And prebiotics and probiotics, you know, it gets very confusing because All of these fiber, prebiotics, probiotics, it's really the same concept is that we're interested in changes in the gut microbiota. So if I give you a probiotic, which would be something like yogurt or something that has live bacteria in it, and that has an effect on your gut bacteria, that's a probiotic effect. So you're actually eating the microbes. And the prebiotic effect is I give you a fiber, things like inulin, fructooligosaccharides, And that fiber gets down into your large intestine, gets fermented, and changes your bacteria, your microbiota in a positive way. And this has been the tough thing is that the scientific support lagged a little bit beyond where people were, okay, what's the perfect microbiota? What's good? Mm. And, you know, we can go back and say, okay, breastfed babies tend to be healthier and they have very high levels of bifidobacteria. So we assume that that's good. But do we know that that's actually good? Because there's so many bacteria in your large intestine, how much bifido do we want? And we have a lot of studies that inulin absolutely works very well in increasing both bifido and lactobacillus. Hmm. So, and it's our other fibers, prebiotics, yes, other fibers, oat fiber, lots of guar gum fiber, acacia gum fiber have been studied and also shown to have prebiotic properties. I always like to say, too, that prebiotics become very popular, consumers are interested, and it kind of drags fiber along because all of a sudden people say, hey, fiber must be good for me if it's a prebiotic. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely some good in that, but I also think it's pretty confusing just because there's so much nomenclature out there that's not very well defined. Oh, I agree. In fact, I was going to ask you about some of the whole grain labels that we see splattered about on different grain products. And yet you go and you look at the fiber. I'm a big fan of the Nutrition Facts panel 
because I can go there and I can see exactly how many grams I'm going to get, or at least as close as we are to knowing. And so often a person might see a label that says made with whole grains, but the fiber content isn't all that much. And I remember telling patients decades ago that if you were eating a grain product, you wanted to get at minimum two grams of fiber per serving. Do you think that's still good advice or how would you change that? You know, I think that is good advice just because we're, I appreciate you bringing up the nutrition facts panel because it's an amazing thing that we have in the U.S. where that information is available. The new nutrition facts panel that if you see, you know, the calories are bigger and there have been some changes, the daily value for fiber is actually going up to 28 grams per day from 25 grams per day. And that is based on this cardiovascular data that shows higher levels of fiber protect against cardiovascular disease and that it's a model really where they pulled all this data together and found that 14 grams per thousand kcals was the protective amount. So since 2000 is the daily value on a nutrition facts panel, it needed to go up to 28. So the thing that's good because we want people to eat more fiber, we know that fiber is protective, but when you see good and excellent sources of fiber, they're going to have to actually increase the amounts to get to those higher levels. You know, I do fiber and I do whole grains, and both of them are really important concepts because whole grains are still our most important fiber source. Yes. For the average person in the U.S., we get more fiber from whole grains than anything else. And if we could get people to eat more fruits, more vegetables, more legumes, we might be making some progress on that. But right now, whole grains are still an important source of fiber. I like to separate them out in that fiber is a nutrient. You get a number, it's on the Nutrition Facts panel. Whole grains are a food group. They're a dietary pattern, and we want, for dietary guidelines, when we do that type of modeling, the health effects are with three servings of whole grains per day. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to figure out what's a serving, and the dietary guidelines have defined what a serving is. And So I think there's a, a more of an attempt to standardize that. But your point is really important because some grains have very low levels of fiber. Mm-hmm. So for example, brown rice is a whole grain, but it's very low in fiber. So sometimes if you look at whole grain cereals and they're using whole grain rice, they could completely reformulate with a whole grain rice compared to a refined rice and you might not see a big change in fiber. Oh, that's interesting. So I think they're both important concepts and generally they link pretty well, especially on the wheat. You know, wheat is the most common whole grain that people consume, and it's pretty high in fiber. So you're pretty good there. But corn and rice tend to be pretty low in fiber. So even the recommendation would still be, hey, eat more whole grains. We believe that to be protective. And fiber generally comes along, but sometimes not in as big a dose as people expect to see. Okay. Let me take one break. Remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Dr. Joanne Slavin. She is a nutritionist at the University of Minnesota in St. Paul. Her area of expertise is on carbohydrate, fiber, whole grains, and the role of diet in disease prevention. Well, when you mentioned that the number is going to be going up, so when we have a daily value on a nutrition facts panel, that means like that's our goal. That's what we want to try to consume every day. But what I see happening is perhaps food manufacturers adding more fiber then to show that they are closer to meeting that daily value. What are your thoughts on supplemental fibers, say people who take just wheat bran or Metamucil, there's a brand name of psyllium, 
What are your thoughts about getting fiber through supplements versus getting it through whole foods? Well, I'm a dietitian first, so I always want people to try to get their nutrients through foods. So right. that is the objective. And if you look at my plate, it doesn't take that much to get nutrients if you follow the recommendations. But typically, fiber is a nutrient of concern. It comes up always when the dietary guidelines meet, and usual intakes are about half what they should be. So that's a really big gap to get. So we need an extra 14 grams of fiber every day. How are we going to get it? And fiber in whole foods does link with calories. So it's kind of a tough one. If people would pick higher fiber foods, that could work. But to get people to eat more fiber through eating more foods can be cause other problems that might be more significant. So that's the frustrating thing. And, and it's always true in supplements. You know, I, I believe if you can't get it through foods, then yeah, you want to get it through supplements. And that's really what's all brand cereal. All brand cereal was formulated to give you 13 grams of fiber a day. And for a lot of people, they would prefer to have a bowl of really high fiber cereal in the morning and that gets them half the way there. So if they eat the other recommended servings, they're going to get much closer to the fiber recommendation. And Metamucil the same way for a lot of people, they just can't eat that much food or it causes them some digestive problems. So they would rather take it basically as a laxative in the morning. And once they get into the habit of that, that's the easiest way to do it. Obviously, we would prefer they continue to eat whole foods and get fiber that way. But we do have a problem in that a lot of foods people think of as really being high in fiber don't have much. So often people say, well, I had a salad for lunch. Okay, that's maybe one gram or two grams of fiber. So getting up to that 28 is kind of hard without supplemental. And I do think when you talked about inulin becoming a very popular fiber, one of the reasons was it was prebiotic. So it did increase bifidobacteria. And so there were people that were excited about that. But the other thing is you can formulate products with pretty large amounts of inulin that still taste good. So often people, this is always the problem we get into with whole grains. People say, I don't like whole grains. They don't taste good. They're bitter. It's like, well, keep trying. You'll get used to it. And there are certain people, no, not going to do it. I don't want to do it. So I think the advantage of some of these isolated fibers, and you see a lot of them on the market right now, whether it's inulin, soluble corn fiber, acacia gum, these fibers are easily incorporated into foods and beverages. So for a lot of people, it's like, okay, I'd rather drink something that has five grams of fiber because I'm going to get a drink anyway. Mm -hmm. Is it the perfect way? No, absolutely not. You know, because we know that whole foods have health benefits beyond fiber. Exactly. So I always want people to know that, that even though I give you eight grams of fiber and it's the same amount in these recommended food patterns, it's not the same. We know that there's health benefits with fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains. So we never want to get away from that whole foods approach. Right. Now, I'm sitting here with the Institute of Medicine recommended daily intakes for fiber. And for females 19 through 50, the recommended amount is 25 grams per day. And for females over 50, it's 21. For males 19 through 50, it's 38 grams per day. And for men over 50, it's 30. Why the decline in fiber recommendations in the older age category? Well, and that's just because fiber was set up. It was set up on 
epidemiological data, protection against cardiovascular disease. So those are just modeled numbers. Okay. So the reason that the young men have such a high value is because their calorie needs are so high. Sure. So those fiber values, they just did the math on that and said, okay, 14 grams of fiber per thousand calories, you need 3,000 calories. So we just scale up to that. I see. Old people need fewer calories, therefore we scale back. So they're not based on any more science than that. And that's why, to me, the 28 that's on the nutrition facts label, that's a pretty good place to be. That's pretty close to the middle. Let's stay there. Because even kids, if you go into the DRIs, the kid recommendation is 19, Mm -hmm. even for young kids. And that's way too much because, you know, it's just too much for them. And it was never really set up for them. So some of these old recommendations on fiber that were age plus five grams, I think are pretty good. Oh, good. Even though there's not a ton of science on there, they're more based on practice of what you should recommend for kids to consume. So if I'm a five-year-old, my recommendation, and you know, my calories are not going to be that high, that 10 grams would be a much better number than 19. 19 would just be too much for them. That's a really good way to think about it. I think it's sort of the American way to think that, well, if a little is good, more is better. And especially as we get older, maybe our digestive system is slowing down a bit. Would you say that if you can get higher than 28, that's advantageous? You know, is there a limit to the amount of fiber that's good? There really isn't. If you read the DRI document, my poor students have to read it. Nobody else in the world would probably <laughs> want to read it, but there is no UL or upper limit for fiber. Wow. And when they did that, they were charged with, is there a number for these nutrients where we get ourselves in trouble? So let never go above that. So for vitamins and minerals, different ones, we have this UL, don't ever go above it. For fiber, though, they looked at some of the diets that are out there and vegetarians consume 75 grams a day or more. So if you eat lots of starchy carbohydrates that are high in fiber, you can get much higher and you can adapt to that. So I think that's the, the, like, as you say, people in the U.S., we say, oh, fiber, it's great. And we start taking too much supplemental. It's like, oh, that causes gas. I don't like it. I'm going to stop. So we know that people on plant-based diets that are high in fiber can go much higher than that. Mm-hmm. There isn't that the epi data we have in the U.S., so it would be like the nurses' health study, those cohort studies where we follow people over time, we know their diet, and then we look at what kind of diseases they get. The highest levels of fiber they consumed was that 14 grams per thousand calories. So we don't really know if higher amounts would be more protective, but we don't have data that higher amounts are at all detrimental. So I think it's one of the nice things about fiber it's generally, we need to consume more, we need to consume more, let's think about how we're going to do it. Now, you mentioned fiber's protective effects for cardiovascular disease. I'm assuming that fiber also has a protective effect on colon cancer, but make me up to date on that. Yeah, you know, that's a tough one, because there were these, in science, we usually have an association, we see a relationship, and then we do some animal studies, try to get a mechanism, do some feeding studies, and then eventually we want to do an intervention to see if we can affect a biomarker. So there were studies, and you probably remember these, probably 25 years ago where extra fiber was given for people with polyps. Right. And the thought was extra fiber would help people not develop into colon cancer. Those studies are really hard to do. They're really expensive and tend not to be very successful, and that was true with the fiber ones. And if you look at it, part of the reason is people 
didn't keep eating fiber. So a lot of the intervention groups just weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing, but there wasn't a significant effect. So people kind of lost interest. But Mm -hmm. if you go back to the history on colon cancer, there is some data in, in higher amounts of fiber, probably 35 grams or more, that there are some protective effects against colon cancer. But like all cancers and relationships, probably there's better data on exercise on, and colon cancer than there is on diet right. and protectiveness. But you know, there's still no reason not to tell people most of the data we have would say that higher levels of fiber should be protective against colon cancer. Our time together is flying, as I knew it would. This is such a fascinating topic. But I think that in this day and age, we need to address some of the reasons why people may not get enough fiber. And with the popularity of gluten-free, wheat-free, paleo, and keto diets, fiber tends to come up short on many of these diets. What kind of direction do you give your students when they ask about these unique situations where they're restricting some of these whole grain foods? Yeah, I totally agree. That's the issue we have. Everything is complicated. And now the FODMAPs, I didn't want to get into FODMAPs, but there's a lot of people are, are that want to stay away from fermentable carbohydrates because of problems with intestinal gas and other GI problems. So it's a real challenge to tell people, no, the data on fiber is so strong. It's probably the strongest data we have. And that there's lots of places to get fiber. So let's say you have a gluten issue, you can't consume gluten. There are grains that don't have gluten. Eat oats, right? There are also fruits. There are vegetables that have fiber. So it was interesting. I was out giving a talk at a nursing home, and they just said, we have people eat either yogurt or sauerkraut once a day, and it really works. So cabbage, sauerkraut, some of these fermented foods, you get a lot of fiber from those things. So I just think that there's Rather than just say, hey, I'm avoiding gluten, I'm never going to get any fiber, there's other routes to get it. And then in a pinch, if you're not getting it in diet, I would supplement. And I would supplement uh, based on talking to a dietitian and somebody that would know enough about fiber to make sure you're getting a balance of fiber in the supplemental forms. But there really is no reason to do that just because you're avoiding other things. There are lots of other paths to get fiber. Yeah, and that's the key. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes left. So do you want to leave our listeners with any golden nuggets from your many years of expertise in this area? Oh, that's so nice to get an open like that. I should sell something. I don't have anything I was selling besides good nutrition. I also find that part of it is growing up on a farm and being connected to farmer's markets and real fresh produce and fresh bread and things like that. So so much of our food... People just don't appreciate how good it is, and especially if they've had some role in producing it. So, you know, this plant-based diet, part of dietary recommendations, a big push on that, and that really goes along with fiber. So I guess I'd like to keep it very high level here and just say there's no fiber that's perfect, but all fibers together and all these plant foods is the way we want to go, both for nutrition, sustainability, and improving the world. So it's a really nice place to be in, for sure. I agree. Is there any source or is there a website that you like to refer people to, to get more information on fiber? I think fiber is promoted more by manufacturers and food companies than by any potential. But a lot of the, whether any of the commodities in the grain area, in the vegetable area would have interesting stuff on fiber on their website. So I would definitely go to that. And also 
the fiber manufacturers have a lot of good information that uh, is very scientifically based, so a lot of that is good, too. All right. Well, in closing, I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And especially want to thank my guest, Dr. Joanne Slavin, for her time with us today. She is a professor in the Department of Food Science and Nutrition at the University of Minnesota in St. Paul, where she teaches advanced human nutrition, her specialty being fiber and carbohydrates and disease prevention. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, and I appreciate you promoting fiber. It's great to get that message out, so thanks much. Absolutely. Absolutely.